welcome back to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right. We are talking about Divergent by Veronica Roth, as well as its 2014 film adaptation, which is celebrating its fifth anniversary this week. Hence, the reason I'm forcing you to do another dystopian book. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, I remember really enjoying this series when it first came out. I and feel yet. the same way. <laughs> I don't think I feel quite as strongly as you do, maybe. But yeah, I remember finding it really enjoyable. And then going back has been interesting. Yes. Interesting yeah. is the <laughs> word. <laughs> All right. But first, the news. The news. Do you have news? I have new. Well, I mean, I have olds. I have a... I <laughs> have a title from last year that I'm finally checking out, and I'm really excited about it. Okay. This one's for you, Joe, because I know if you haven't read it, you would enjoy it. It's um, the reboot of the Runaways comic. Oh, I didn't realize that they had rebooted it. They did, and they rebooted it with Rainbow Rowell as the writer and okay. uh, Chris Anka as the artist. Rainbow Rowell, for those who are into YA, uh, is the writer of Fangirl, and she's the writer of the universe that happens around Fangirl with the characters that that character writes about. So she does a lot of realist YA, and then she does some sort of Harry Potter, but with lots of queer stuff <laughs> writing as well. Like fan fiction? Yeah, well, okay, so Fangirl is about a girl who writes fan fiction for a Harry Potter-esque universe, and then it was so popular that Rainbow Rowell went back and wrote the fan fiction as like a book, if that makes sense. Like the fan fiction that that character's writing, she wrote as a standalone book. And I think now a second one's coming out. Yeah. So Carry On was the first one. And then Wayward Son is the sequel that I think just came out. So she's quite beloved in YA fandom community as a writer who kind of gets it <laughs> and gets what fandom is all about. And I teach fangirl in my first year intro to fandom course because it's a really great introduction to that concept of kind of finding your identity through not just your fandom but the way you kind of create the art that you want to see in the world mm. so i love rainbow rowell anyway i think she's fab and runaways gosh i can't remember when the first run of runaways came out but it was i think it's a brian k vaughn title originally actually if i'm not mistaken it is, yeah it's a Marvel title about a group of teenagers. And I remember the tagline for the original Runaways was, every teenager thinks their parents are evil, but some teenagers' parents are. And the idea is that these are teens who have found out that their parents are supervillains, and they decide to go a different way and try to right the wrongs that their parents have done in the world. So Rainbow Rowell led the reboot that came out probably last year or the year before. This is the um, the collected trade paper came out in 2018, and it's the first six issues. Okay. And yeah, it's fantastic. It's the same basic concept, same idea. You know, they find out their parents are supervillains, so they run away and try to make better choices than their parents did. It's the same characters. Rainbow Rowell, she does a really good job of voicing the different characters, and we still have, you know... All the things that made the original series great, pet dinosaurs, etc. Mm -hmm. But it's just a little bit of a refresh. Like it's, uh, it feels very contemporary. The characters are sort of more engaged with online community. Some of them are kind of fans of existing Marvel superheroes. So there's some nice cultural callbacks. And it's honestly just a really pleasurable read that I highly recommend if you need something fun and escapist in your life at the moment. 
Sounds good. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you're reading that, actually, considering that that is on our list of topics to be addressed one of these days. We don't have it currently scheduled, but because there is now a television series of Marvel's The Runaways, we can now actually talk about it. Oh, I completely forgot about the TV series. I haven't seen it at all. Like, I was a super fan of the original run of the comics, and... It pleasantly affirmed my love of Rainbow Rowell that she's done such a good job with this refresh of the title. Okay. Excellent. How about you, Joe? Did you do any homework? I have something on my list. I can't say that I've actually begun it. So I made the mistake last week of just absolutely continuing to fall in love with Becky Albertalli. <laughs> so I ended up picking up Leah and I've been oh, reading that. It's so but good, But that's right? not my pick. It's I know, but tell pick. me it's so good though, right? It is really good. And yeah. I love the fact that it feels like Simon, but it also yeah. feels different. Like, yeah. That to me is the mark of a really good writer. When you This is switch. what I'm saying. Yes, yeah. This is exactly what I was trying to articulate when I talked about Angie Thomas's second book. Same thing, like hitting the same uh, okay. feels and the same notes, but recognizably a very different story. Oh, mm -hmm. love it. Yeah. But considering the conversation that we had had around Love, Simon, and especially the extended piece at the end of that book, where it was Angie Thomas and Becky Albertalli, as well as Adam Silvera, I thought, you know what? I've read two of these three authors. Mm. Maybe I should find out what's special about the third. So when I picked up Leah, I also picked up Adam Silvera's They Both Die at the End. Mm -hmm. So this is about two gay men who meet each other. It's set in a soft dystopia, I would describe it. I don't know if that's a technical term, but it's a future world where things have changed, but it's not a total shit world like Divergent. And the premise is that you get notified on the day that you will die. And then there's a app that you can use that will match you with other people who are in the same situation so that you can be surrounded by like-minded people on your final day. And these two guys meet, and I'm imagining they have a very lovely day where they meet, they fall in love, they share the day, and then the title sounds a little foreboding, so I'm going to assume <laughs> that it ends in a mild tragedy. <laughs> but uh, I, I trust that Angie and Becky would have good taste, so I'm quite excited to check it out. Yeah, it's really interesting. So uh, I have an off-brand difficulty with Adam Silvera. Not that he's not a gifted writer, but something about him doesn't click with me. I've tried to read both More Happy Than Not and History Is All You Left Me, and I did not finish either of them, and I'm not sure why. Hmm. So yeah, I'd be interested to hear once you get into it, because I can't figure out what it is about his work that doesn't click with me, since I do love the other two so much, and I love the book that he co-wrote with Becky Albertalli. So yeah. yeah, I don't know what my block is with him. So I'm really excited to hear that you're checking it out, and I want to know what you think when you get through it. Yeah, one of these days we will actually have to follow through and circle back to all of these books that we've been talking about and let people know how we feel about it. Maybe that'll be one of our spring projects. Yeah, yeah. Joe and I have been talking about, are we going to take some time off in the summer? Are we going to do some different kind of shows over the summer? And yeah, I think probably circling back to see, did Brenna finish all the books she mentioned would probably be a good mm -hmm. topic, for example, since people often ask. It's a good reason to follow Brenna on Twitter because she Ooh. also posts the books that she's reading as part of her Goodreads list. 
And of course, I think we're both on Goodreads, so people could technically follow us there if they wanted to as well. I am not on Goodreads, but I do log my hashtag 95 books on Twitter. So yeah, that's a good time to say that you can follow us on Twitter with the hashtag HKHSPod. We got some nice comments this week on the hashtag. I was pretty excited. We do, yeah. Mm-hmm. And hopefully the Love, Simon will reel in some people who maybe have been hesitating because I think it's a popular enough text. Oh, I'm we so good. Okay. But uh, yeah, the discussion for Love, Simon and Simon versus the Homo sapien agenda is over. And we are now into a divergent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> been waiting to hear your thoughts on this one all week. So <laughs> very excited. All right. So Divergent was published in 2011. I really thought that it came out when I was in grad school. I have really like clear memories, I think, of reading this book when I was in grad school. And yet I defended my PhD in 2010. So it's impossible. (laughs) But every time I think about reading this book, I remember it in that context. So I don't know what happened to... There's some... What did uh, Kurt Vonnegut say? I've come unstuck in time. Did you read The Hunger Games and then confuse <laughs> Divergent for it? Yes, and there was a third one, wasn't there at the time? There was like Hunger Games, there was Insurgent, and or sorry, Divergent, and then there was another one that had like a one-word title. Hmm. Anyway, whatever. I mean, this is peak YA dystopia times. So. This was peak YA dystopian times. So as I say, the first book came out in 2011. It's part of a trilogy, the Divergent trilogy, which also has like a fourth sort of novella from four's perspective we'll tell you who that is in a second because stephanie meyer started (laughs) how dare you okay so the book takes place in post-apocalyptic chicago in this volume we don't find out what the apocalypse was i'm pretty sure we do in the later volumes but it's been a while since i've read them yeah i think it starts to come out in uh insurgent and then it's definitely confirmed in allegiant because that's the big conflict in the final book That's right. And I couldn't even remember how many books were in the series when I was talking about this with my brother this week. And I was like, oh, you don't find out why the apocalypse happened until like the fourth book. And then he's on Wikipedia and he's like, there's three books. There's only three. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're in post-apocalyptic Chicago. And that's important because of the elevated trains that are a major way the characters in this novel get around the world. Yes, but it's really danced around in the book. I think Chicago gets mentioned once casually, whereas I love that the film just opens mid-credits Chicago. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I definitely, I remember when there was just the books and there wasn't the movie and the whole universe, I remember sort of feeling like I was a really good, careful reader because I'd figured out it was Chicago. Mm -hmm. She's definitely not explicit about it. So we meet the survivors of this apocalypse and the community has organized itself. It's basically a city state, like Chicago is sort of a city state unto itself. And it's divided itself into five what they call factions. The factions are abnegation, which are selfless people, amity, who are the peacekeepers, candor, who are the truth tellers, dauntless, who are the stupid, I mean the brave, (laughs) and erudite, who are the intellectual scholar class. Yeah, aka the smarty pant buttholes. Yeah, total smarty pant buttholes. I don't understand why everybody doesn't choose Amity. That's my major question. Anyway, whatever. Um, so Amity and Candor do not count in this world. They just happen to be other factions. Yeah, and it's weird. I, mean, I just feel like if you could choose anywhere, there's this one faction called Amity, and all they do is like they farm and are pleasant to each other. I don't understand why anybody wants to be part of the rest of these communities, but so maybe because yellow is not your color. 
I guess. Uh, so in the story, this choosing I'm talking about happens when you turn 16. You go through a testing, which gives you the faction that you are best suited to, but mm-hmm. you aren't actually obligated. It's not like a sorting hat situation. You can override. You can choose differently if you want to. So once you choose the faction you're going to belong to, you go through an initiation process. And the initiation process is different for each faction, but the end result is the same. You're either accepted into your faction as a full member, or you become one of the factionless. And those who exist outside of the faction system are the destitute. And they exist without social supports, with the exception of the fact that abnegation, the selfish, selfless ones, um, sort of feed and clothe those communities. So our protagonist is Beatrice. She's 16. She's a member of Abnegation, as is her brother Caleb. She doesn't really feel like she belongs in Abnegation. And when she goes through the test, she gets marked as, well, she doesn't, she finds out that her test results are inconclusive, which means that she is divergent. What? okay. (laughs) (laughs) And divergent means that your brain works like more than one of the factions. And in her case, she is sort of equally suited to abnegation, dauntless, and erudite. Is that the third one she's suited to? It is, yeah. Okay. So she's a perfect mix of all three. And she doesn't know what to do. And at the choosing ceremony, she's sort of still not sure what she's going to do at the very last moment. And then her brother, who she thought was like Mr. Abnegation, is like, nope, I'm going to erudite. See you, mom and dad. And then Beatrice is like, oh, I absolutely have to stay with abnegation now because my brother's left. And then she actually gets up and she's like, actually, no, I'm dauntless. And the choosing ceremony is really gross. You slice yourself with a knife, which in the movie version, nobody washes in between cuttings. Oh, I thought I saw someone wash the knife in between, but it's a very, yeah, it's off to the side kind of deal. It's pretty gross. You cut yourself with the knife and then you hold your bleeding palm over the faction that you want to join. And so when you go into Dauntless, your blood hits these coals and like spatters. But I think part of that is it's meant to be symbolic because the whole point is that you're giving up blood so that you can choose your faction. So it's faction over blood, but you have to bleed into it. That's very, very English professor of you. I didn't even catch that. Not bad. <laughs> very good you. Still got it. <laughs> <laughs> so she chooses Dauntless, and I guess they're supposed to be cool, but they just come across as profoundly goofy to me. Anyway. They like to climb stuff. They, they climb like to hop stuff. on moving trains. They and like to wear a lot trains. of black. They wear a tattoos. lot of black leather, and they tattoo themselves, and they cut their hair short. It's all or very, very cool. Hair. Yeah. That's true. They're allowed that as well. They're very cool. Super cool. They're what a 16-year-old would think is super cool. They really are. Like they, yes, they they are. Anyway, so Triss goes through, sorry, Beatrice changes her name when she joins the faction to just Triss. And she has a difficult time at first with initiation. She's not very strong and she's quite small, but she's fast. But slowly she improves. So there's like stage one, she makes it through stage one, she makes it through stage two. And then in stage three, the final exam, so to speak, is something called a fear landscape where mm-hmm. they have to navigate all of their fears because the Dauntless are so, so brave and they have to either face or stay calm in the face of their most profound fears and everyone has a different number of fears and it turns out that Triss has seven of them and she makes it through successfully and yay, she's Dauntless and she's ranked number one and she's awesome. 
but I feel like you've forgotten an important <laughs> character in all of this. Ugh. Do I have to talk about him? I mean, maybe, just because he might come up later. You think? <laughs> um, so her teacher, through the process, uh, is two years older than her, and his name is Four. And what we learn about Four over the course of the narrative is, number one, he only has four fears, and that's why they call him Four. It's the least number of fears of anyone in the history of the world. I don't get it. Can you explain that to me? <laughs> when he goes through his landscape, <laughs> there are only four fears. Oh, one, two, and three were taken. <laughs> but he also, we find out, was formerly of the abnegation faction and has abandoned abnegation to escape his abusive father, mm -hmm. who is the leader of abnegation. And abnegation as the selfless class is the government, basically. And so his dad is like the leader of everyone. And so although he's the most promising Dauntless recruit basically ever. He rejects any kind of leadership position in Dauntless because he doesn't want to have to interact with his dad. We also find out that he, like Triss, is divergent. So after Triss is initiated, everyone is injected with this serum that they get told is just a tracker. But really, it turns out that the snooty smarty pants over in Erudite want to overthrow abnegation. And so they have all of the Dauntless injected with basically this mind control serum that turns them into like a zombie army that will go in and attack abnegation. But surprisingly, the divergent aren't susceptible <laughs> to the mind control serum. And so Triss and Four are able to resist. Fight they fight back, but then they get caught. And then... Um... Oh my God, just speed it up. Her parents <laughs> die. They manage to thwart the apocalypse a second time, but then they end up without a faction on the run. Oh yeah, okay, that's better. God, for a you... book that you don't like, you went into a lot of detail. <laughs> Well, I was going to leave out four entirely, and then you made me go back. Well, I kind of figured you would maybe talk about some of the other characters. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't mentioned Peter, the psychopath, Ugh. who is, I mean, just the absolute worst. Her best friend, Christina, who's the absolute best. Except for when she's not. Except when she's not, because, you know, you can't ever have girls just like girls. Um, you can't ever have more than one girl leader at a time. That's what annoys me the most about the end of this book. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we've got Al, who's big and soft, and he ends Murderous. up committing suicide because he can't take it that Triss could actually be better at something than him. Well, first he tries to kill her, and then he feels guilty, and she won't forgive him, and then he kills himself. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then we've got Will, who is Christina's future boyfriend that Triss ends up murdering. When well, she murders zombie Will. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's her parents. Her mom, she has always thought her mom was like a devout abnegation but really her mom is divergent and joined abnegation to hide herself away because she knew that she would be caught and killed if she was found in dauntless wait are you sure her mom is divergent or is it just that she knows about divergent people no her mom tells her she's divergent at the end of the book the right before she like runs out and gets shot she tells uh, her that the reason she chose abnegation is because her mother figured out she was divergent and her mother was a leader of dauntless and told her to go and hide in abnegation where she'd be safe yes which is interesting because we also find out that the majority of the divergent people come from abnegation it's one of the reasons that janine is so threatened by that particular faction mm -hmm. and i guess that allusion about her mother suggests that 
do they come from abnegation or is abnegation the safest place for cover if you are divergent? Questions. Questions. This book has a lot of questions. <sighs> this book makes me tired. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so explain to me your general disdain for this book. Disdain is too strong a word. And honestly, I really did enjoy it the first time I read it through. But I think... I actually think I put my finger on it this morning and I was driving around with my toddler thinking about what I was going to talk about today and trying to (laughs) psych myself up to not just be a negative Nelly. Okay, I get why this book works for teenagers, especially the notion that most people are sheeple and you alone are the person who understands how everything really works Mm -hmm. is sort of a phase we all go through as teenagers. And it's a phase that I suspect is part of the appeal of this book, right? This idea that you alone can think in all ways where most people are so limited in their little tiny worlds. Like there's a lot of appeal in that. And I think, I was trying to think about the difference between me now and me eight years ago when I read this, because I read it when it first came out. And I think I really reject the notion that most people are profoundly limited Because that's what this book suggests, that most of the world sees things in only one way and is not resistant to, but incapable of complex or nuanced thought. Mm -hmm. And that there's just a select few special people who can see the world in meaningful, complex ways. And I was thinking about this morning, and I wonder part of it is like, I have eight years of teaching an incredibly diverse student population behind me now yeah. that I didn't so you've have. you've experienced it firsthand, just how diverse and how intellectual people are. Well, yeah, and how our gifts that we all have are so different and the ways we see the world are also different. And that I f- sort of firmly believe that almost anybody could be nurtured to function in any one of these communities. There's a rigidity to the the world outlook and a a sense of there are sort of only but a few special perfect people who can challenge the system Mm -hmm. that I don't love as a central message. Yeah. To me, this has a lot of the same problems of City of Bones, which is we've got a female protagonist, but very few other women in interesting positions or very few other capable women. And those who are... Like, her mom is so interesting, but she only gets to be so interesting for about 22 pages before she's dead, right? Yeah. Well, hang on, because now you're raising multiple interesting points, which I want to address. So let's hang on to that second one for a moment, because I've got a quote that I think would be helpful to address your first point. Hmm. So I found two interesting articles, because I, like you, was struggling with my reaction to this. I liked it the first time I read it, and then when I went back and revisited it, I was like... This just isn't what I remember, and I'm Mm -hmm. having some difficulty processing my feelings because I don't know how I would think something was so fine the first time, and then just kind of grating and not okay the second time. Mm -hmm. I want to make it clear. This is not a terribly written book. It's not a badly acted or produced film, but there's something that just doesn't click, I think, for adults in these texts. Mm. So... The first one that I'm going to bring in is a Wired article from a woman named Laura Hudson, and the title is a little dismissive. It's called The Divergent Movie is Social Commentary for Simpletons. (laughs) 
But here's a more representative quote. So she says, Divergent is the equivalent of a dystopian sorting hat that resolves into a trite statement about how each and every one of us is a special and unique snowflake. Mm. From that perspective, it's easy to understand why the story has been so popular. It's the fantasy both of the teenager who desperately wants to belong and the teenager who desperately wants to be different. Mm. It wants too badly to have it both ways. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think that's exactly it. Because when you start to look at how the faction system has been created in this world, everything completely falls apart. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the biggest thing is what you just said, which is people can't be boiled down to a single concept. And I do think that Veronica Roth is actually proposing that that is a system that doesn't have any kind of lasting ability, but obviously it would be attractive to authoritarian regimes to say, we can put people into their nice little boxes. But the problem is is that she also wants to have her cake and eat it too, Mm -hmm. because she wants to have these people who are different. She wants to have them be rule breakers, but it all feels like it's in service of this weird, complicated messaging that she doesn't exactly execute well. And I mean that literally because she executes a bunch of people at the end of this book. (laughs) Well, and I think that's exactly it, is that on the one hand, she's saying this system can't hold. But the reason that the system cannot hold is because of a handful of very, very special people. Mm -hmm. She's still articulating that the vast majority of people will live their lives only functioning in one way and be relatively content about it. And I find that a really troubling central thesis. Like Mm -hmm. the reason why this is not sustainable is because there are some people who are divergent, but they are still the most special of special. Mm -hmm. And that's bothersome to me. I also... I think that the book buys into a thread of American society that was present in 2011 and became terrifying in, gosh, oh, I don't know, about November of 2016. Mm -hmm. And that is is a a deep-seated anti-intellectualism, right? Like the villains of this book are... They're scary, smart people. Are scary, smart people. And... um, I was reading a review by David Edelstein. It was his review. And in it, he points out that Veronica Roth saves all of her loathing. Her most, like, Marcus has abused his child, and Mm -hmm. he's still not as profoundly loathed as the erudite as a community as a whole. Right? Like, this notion that these smart people who think they know better than everyone else are 201, right? Like, we meet, is it Will's sister who we meet, who's just, like, a complete bitch to Triss for no reason. Like, this notion that these people who think they're smarter than everyone else are really the central problem, (laughs) I find bothersome as well. I mean, there is obviously a commentary about propaganda and using news media in that way the book is prescient because it's actually anticipating the rise of fake news Mm -hmm. because the erudite use their fake news reports to undermine trust in abnegation but the reason that janine doesn't like abnegation is because she herself just wants power yes she's fearful that they're harboring divergence But the reason she's afraid of divergence is because they can thwart her plans. Yes. Which is such a weird message. It's this idea that if you're an intellectual, all you do is create power. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Well, I would counter by saying that there's a lot of smart people who only crave more knowledge. 
which again, there's a suggestion that the faction system has also been poisoned. So we see that in Dauntless with the idea around the training regiment that originally started as something and it's now progressively been picked away by people like Eric, by people like Janine and Erudite to become something completely different. It's like it's mm-hmm. lost its focus. But there's still a weird suggestion that you're right, this whole faction system would have worked once upon a time, which I just don't buy. Veronica Roth doesn't spend enough time setting up this world or really thinking through. And my problem as a person who enjoys science fiction and fantasy is that this world feels yeah. very shallow. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And I think ultimately there's this feeling that the system would have held if it wasn't for them meddling intellectuals. <laughs> yeah, it's like just... the Scooby-Doo version of this. <laughs> oh, if not for those divergent kids meddling up my plans. Um, it's such a simplistic view of human nature. A, the idea that the majority of people would fall in line with this system. B, that the erudite class is by definition not just intellectual, but intellectual and incapable of feeling, right? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me that intellectual but incapable of feeling is problematic in a way that she doesn't represent brave but incapable of feeling as being problematic. She doesn't demonstrate like selflessness but incapable of feeling. Like the really the only people who seem to like feel any sense of responsibility or goodness Mm -hmm. are Amity, and again, they're not in the book. No, no. <laughs> they're just really not in the book. I've got another quote from Laura that will actually tie in what you're talking about with that second point that you raised about the lack of interesting female characters or mm. the lack of complicated characters in that mm. way. So she says, Although the story ostensibly sets out to debunk the idea of the simplistic social sorting, much of its appeal still lies in that concept. After all, what makes Dauntless, the warrior faction Triss joins, so interesting and appealing is the fact that they set themselves apart as the rebellious cool kids. They're exciting and dangerous because they buy into the idea that they're exciting and dangerous. (laughs) When we find ourselves enjoying it, to some degree, we're buying in too. So it's interesting because I do think that Triss has the components to be an interesting heroine, but she accepts so much of this BS that Dauntless feeds her. You know, there's strength in being able to fight your friends. Yep. Like the measure of a person should be in their physical agility, which, you know, doesn't address ableism in any situation. But the end of the book reveals the fact that these people are bred to be mindless warriors. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's no strength in that. They're basically Mm -hmm. raising an army of Luddites who have the physical capacity to do something. And yet they, as a faction, achieve a redemption of sorts in that when Four manages to stop the program and they are no longer under the sway of the mind control, they're all disgusted by what they've done and they're Mm -hmm. feeling profound grief and guilt. That is not a redemption that Erudite, as a faction, gets to have. No. Erudite are just with bad. a very broad brush, even though there's no suggestion that other people in Erudite, like they've all been lied to. Mm-hmm. And part of this too is that like a lot of the other texts that we talked about that are the first book of many, much like City of Bones, this one just ends. There isn't a satisfying conclusion to it, so you don't really even get to understand what the ramifications are for the Erudite people. What Mm -hmm. becomes of abnegation? You know, what happens with the rest of Dauntless? It literally just feels like, well, we achieved this minor victory and now we're sailing off on this train to Wonderland. (laughs) I was doing a lot of sort of Googling around of reviews 
And one thing that I could not help but notice is that this book is very popular with... Ooh, I want to guess. I'm like, boys, girls, young people. <laughs> YA blogs that are targeted at young conservatives and blogs for young evangelicals. Oh. Is this where we need to introduce some problematic Veronica Roth stuff? Well, I mean, I don't know how much of it is her personally and how much of it is just what exists within the texts and I, right. I or how much people are reading into it. But like... I noticed, for example, there's a whole lot of celebration of this book as uh, apparently post-feminist. Oh. Yeah. Okay. This idea of like, wow, check it out. We have this young woman who's kicking butt and she's the protagonist, but she doesn't like have to talk about the rights of other women. Like she never talks about celebrating other women's achievements. And isn't that awesome? Oh. I saw a lot of discussion of um, a celebration of it as... If people like erudite were in charge, that's basically Maoism or Stalinism. And Triss and the Divergence are like the good people who fight against that. Right. So uh, it's an interesting interpretation that mm. is selective and really being compressed to fit into a particular ideology. Right. And Roth is very open about her own faith. Like in a lot of interviews, she talks about her Christian faith and how important that is to her. And I think that some people have taken that to mean that this is the only way to read or engage with or think about her writing in a way that I I don't think is necessarily fair to her but I also think that there is obviously we've talked about some problematic stuff in the text and I think I felt more generous towards this thought experiment in a pre-Trump America like I'll just say it right before this sort of anti-intellectualism and this limited view of human capacity and before we were drenched in overt and explicit white supremacy and ableism like constantly coming out of the white house you know like i'm not saying that those problems didn't exist because obviously they did but there is a level of sort of state sanctioning of some of the kinds of beliefs that are in this book with the election of Trump. And I just feel like Divergent isn't fun anymore. I think it was fun in 2011. I think in 2019, it's just exhausting. Yep. Yeah. And we've had a couple of conversations about how texts change, not just as you get older or as you change, but also about how they are received into the world. And I think it's a really valid conversation to be having about the role that art plays and how you negotiate it. Mm -hmm. And just to come back to this idea that certain people can read this book and suggest that it's advocating for certain things. It's like, okay, the whole purpose to me of art and deconstructing it and having conversation about it, like on this podcast, is if you can defend your argument, if you can find meaning in it, then let's have an intelligent conversation. Mm -hmm. But I don't condone this idea that because an author is coming from a particular background, that that means that it is the only way to interpret a text. That's an antiquated idea. And also, if you're shoehorning something in so that you can use it to spew hatred and harm to others, then... You should maybe insert some kind of simulation into yourself so that uh, you can become a nicer person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. So many of these kinds of dystopian stories for young people are ultimately about overthrowing an authority that 
I don't even know how to word this. I just... Traditionally, you would look at it as rebellious teens who are individual or who don't adapt to fit a particular kind of mold. And it's often dealing with issues around authority with parental control. So it's adult authority figures, which to me is the 2011 interpretation of Divergent, right? It's somebody trying to control people and that person has to be opposed and overthrown. Whereas in the 2019 interpretation, there's a lot more complicated, nuanced ways of having to go at this text. Yes, agreed. 100% agreed. Okay, well, we've solved Divergent, so let's... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say that maybe this is a good time to talk about the film because I think a lot of my problems with the book are also present in the film. I was going to say are changed, are muted, but I don't don't actually think that's true. No, I don't think so either. I think part of the reason that you're feeling that is because the film adaptation is actually quite good in the way that it captures a lot of what the book is. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that also means that it's captured all the problematic aspects that we've begun talking about. Mm -hmm. All right, with that in mind, let's uh, roll the trailer. The only way our society can survive is for each of you to claim your rightful place. Today, you will take a test that will help you discover who you truly are. The future belongs to those who know where they belong. You ready? This was supposed to tell me what to do. We're supposed to trust the test. Didn't work on you. They call it divergent. You can't let them find out about you. They're always watching. You have to hide or they'd never expect to find you. Welcome to Dolmas. The two stages of training. First is physical. Push your bodies to the breaking point. You're never gonna win. I like that. It's good to know. Keep tension here, okay? The second is mental. Face your worst fears and conquer them. You made a mistake choosing Thomas. We'll find out about you. I know what you are. Okay, so some information about the film. It's directed by Neil Berger. This is kind of his big breakthrough film after he directed Limitless, which is the Bradley Cooper film where he takes drugs that (laughs) ironically make him super smart. And (laughs) it's what he does with that power that ends up being a bit of a corrupting force. So there's an interesting through line there. There's two writers. One is Evan Daughtry and the other is Vanessa Taylor. Very, very different kinds of writers. Daughtry is behind films like Snow White and the Huntsman, the recent Tomb Raider, and the recent revival of Ninja Turtles. All of those films are not good. (laughs) Vanessa Taylor is responsible for writing on TV shows like Alias and Game of Thrones, and she's the writer behind The Shape of Water, the Best Picture winner from two years ago. So I'm going to go ahead and just credit all the bad stuff in the film to Evan and all the good stuff to Vanessa, because their credits suggest that. I like it. 
A couple of other final things. The budget for this film was $85 million, so it is relatively expensive, but the gross domestically was $151 million. So we are still very firmly in the heydays of these dystopian YA book-to-film adaptations grossing quite a bit of money. That's not in Hunger Games territory, that's not in Harry Potter territory, but considering that this is a less recognizable text, it's pretty darn good. And then we've got our cast. So Shailene Woodley, who we've talked about before from our Fault in the Stars episode, plays mm-hmm. Triss. We've got Theo James as Four, Ashley Judd as her mom, Tony Goldwyn from TV Scandal as her dad, Zoe Kravitz is Christina, her best friend, Miles Teller is Peter, the meanie from Dauntless. There we go. <laughs> Forgot the <laughs> name. Kate Winslet is our villain, Janine, and her brother, Caleb, is played by Ansel Elgort, and this was one of two texts that these two have obviously made together, and it's very odd to go back and forth between the two of them because they're love interests in one and brother-sister in the other. Yes, yes, it's true. Yeah. And they came out really close to each other, right? Like, the films were released. I think it's the same year. The same year, yeah, and I, I still remember being like, wait, what? What? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what did you think about the film? Hmm. The film made me feel old. (laughs) It's one of the first times on the podcast that I felt that way. And you know what it was? My brother was visiting this weekend and he was here and he and my husband and I were watching. I'm so happy to have imposed this on your entire family. (laughs) It was great because you know my brother. (laughs) He was like, what the hell is this thing? Devin gave up halfway through. I think he only watched the first hour. But there's this opening scene as they're going into the, I guess it's selection day, really, or they're going into the testing. And there's this scene where the Dauntless are like all running into the testing center. And like, I understand that they are supposed to be an objective representation of coolness, but I couldn't stop laughing because because Devin and my brother kept saying that they looked like a group of people who would just yell the word parkour at each other. Parkour, parkour. And they do. Like, they look so silly goofy to me. And I, it was at that moment where I was like, I perhaps have gotten too old for, for Divergent. Like, perhaps the window on me finding anything entertaining about this franchise has closed. I'm not going to lie. If they had been doing parkour, I might have liked the movie more. Because instead, all they do is just kind of climb up the staircase. Well, that's the thing. It like They remind me of like when you watch those YouTube videos of kids who think they're doing parkour. They're really just like climbing a staircase that yeah. looks rickety. And then they're like, yeah, parkour. Like <laughs> That is basically what I got from the beginning of the movie. Anyway, I was reading the book and I did that thing where I read a little bit of the book and then I watched the movie and then I finished the book, which is never a great strategy for this show, we both know. Yeah, it's not our preferred method. No, but I I read the book and I was still trying to put my finger on what it was that wasn't working for me. And it all sort of came to life in that opening moment of the film. This is a way that makes sense of seeing the world and yourself as distinct and special from it when you're 16. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't work once you're an adult. And that opening scene really sort of brought that home to me in a in a hilarious way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I remember also enjoying the film. I think I read the book in advance of the film coming out. And then I watched the film. And I liked them both. And I thought that they were fun and clever and enjoyable. And a part of me still feels that way. 
I think this is very much popcorn entertainment. If you mm-hmm. turn off your brain and you just go along with the ride, it's hot people doing action. And, and that's fine. Of all the movies we've watched in this genre so far, the effects are the best here. The world looks really good. Mm-hmm. The world looks cool and like post-apocalyptic-y, but like in a way that you actually kind of want to sit inside and experience. They get the visual feel and they do it in a way that is, yeah, kind of glossy and slick. Yeah. I'll confess I also felt that the Dauntless looked a little silly in the way that, you know, you're watching extras who are maybe a little bit too old. There's nothing cool about 40-year-old people with pink hair and that sort of stuff. But I actually felt that the costumes in the film were really strong. Because unlike in the book where they're really almost monochromatic, like it's black or it's blue. Or, you know, this was finding ways of telling stories about even the cut of clothing. And I appreciated that that kind of effort was made. Like I was really taken with the abnegation outfit that Triss wears. Well, I Mm -hmm. guess back when she's still Beatrice, because it had a perfunctory feel to it, but it was still movie stylish. Mm -hmm. So I could could actually see girls looking at that movie and being like, oh, I wonder if I could sew that from a pattern for myself or something. Um, (laughs) Are these girls in 1956 watching this movie? They got a sewing machine for Christmas. And... Please use the hashtag HKHSPod <laughs> if you were a woman who has ever looked at a movie and said, I wonder if I could sew that. Thank you. Oh, I am I am going to get positive results from this. <laughs> you watch yourself. <laughs> I will say the other thing that struck me from watching the film is that I don't think Shailene Woodley is very good in this. Oh, no, she's she's very bad. The scene where her mother dies is... Oh, so I watched this with Brian. He started laughing. So did Simon. Simon was laughing. Oh, are we terrible yeah. people? <laughs> no, because here's the thing. I totally loved her in Fault in Our Stars. And that mm-hmm. was a big, meaty role with a lot of emotional weight. I don't know what happened to her in this movie, but she's very bad. Yeah. I really do think that part of it is the way that the character's written. The character is different from the book. Mm-hmm. I feel like they've actually taken away a lot of moments of strength from the character, and they've made her a more traditional, I don't want to say damsel in distress, because she is still doing her own thing, particularly when you get to the end and, you know, she's fighting people and she's shooting people and she's strong then. But there's a lot of time where I was just like, no. Can I share a quote from Evan Daughtry? You may, who yes. I believe we are blaming for everything bad in this movie. We are, yes. He was explicit in his experience of writing the screenplay when he said that it's, quote, easy to get hung up on the toughness of the movie, but of at least equal importance is the love story between Triss and Four. Hard. Oh, God, it's inherently hard and inextricably linked to Triss's character journey. Okay. It helps Chris, Triss grow as a character. Okay. I oh. so, so disagree. Oh my gosh. But I think that's part of what's wrong with the movie is that there's way too much attention paid to that. Well, okay. So welcome back to the movie section of this podcast where these people have dollar signs in their eyes and they're thinking about the franchise potential mm-hmm. and they know that they need to sell that romance hard because the perception is that teen girls are going to get into those seats because they want to see these two hot people kiss. <sighs> Also, he's like a decade older than her. They aged him up in the movie. They he's 24. I'm going to give away one of my bingos because he 100% is a pervy teacher to me. Big. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
Whereas here, I was just like, statutory rape, statutory was... rape, it's really gross. <laughs> I was so profoundly uncomfortable during those scenes because they do age him up. And it's important to remember that although Triss is like living in a post-apocalyptic world and she's going through all this, she's a young 16 because yeah. her life in abnegation has shielded her from a lot, including a lot of the kind of critical thinking that goes into your identity formation. Mm-hmm. She's petrified of sex. She's petrified of intimacy. She has no closeness in her life that would help her to define herself and her sense of herself. And... Uh, then we got this old man creeping on her. <laughs> like, I really, really, really disappointed that they aged him up so much and really, really disappointed that they played the love story up so much because it just made me uncomfortable. Yeah, it's a very odd decision when you're saying on one hand, the love story is integral to her story, her growth, but you're also saying, let's age him up so that they are age inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And it feels like they just settled on saying, well, we cast this really hot guy. Because Theo James, he's a hunk and a half. He's got a great face. He could be a model. He probably was a model. But it's still gross. Yeah, it's really, really gross. The hot body is fine to look at, but I don't want to see it in contact with the 16-year-old. Yeah. Especially a really young, naive, innocent 16-year-old. I don't know. That part was icky in both the book and the film to me. Mm Mm-hmm. And it almost seems implicitly built into both that everyone knows it's wrong because that's why Triss has intimacy fears in her final fear landscape. Like, hey, this is not right. I'm afraid of being touched by this gross old man. Even in the book where he's only two years older than her, he's in a profound position of power over her. Mm -hmm. Like, he helps to decide whether she stays in Dauntless or becomes factionless. Like, he's, like, has so much power over her. Yeah. And not just in that sense, but, like, he knows this world that she doesn't know at all. He's seen the kinds of experiences that she's experiencing for the first time in Dauntless that are profoundly shattering and traumatizing. Mm -hmm. So even when they're only two years apart, it makes me very uncomfortable. But then when he seriously looks a decade older than her, it's just so gross. Yeah, unless people want to come at us and say, oh, well, you know, in the successive books, you know, the power dynamics is equalized and this kind of stuff. Sure, whatever. That's not what we're talking about, though. No. Like, we're talking about this book, this film, at this time. It's not okay. And we're not just being old fuddy-duddies with this. Like, it's it's really not appropriate. Especially, like, before he confesses his feelings to her, the kind of language that he uses to dismiss her, right? Like, he calls her a little girl. Mm -hmm. Like, he uses all this... He infantilizes her. Pejorative infantilizing language about her. And then he's like, oh, I've been watching you since you arrived. And it's like, oh, cool. Gonna go barf. (sighs) Okay, let's deviate. One thing I did like about the film, and I think that part of the reason that they did this is because it would just not be palatable, is they dial back Peter's sociopathic tendencies a lot. Oh, you mean he doesn't stab someone in the eye in their sleep? He does not blind anyone in the movie, no. And I think part of that is that you can't make a film for a teen audience where you actually have to show that as opposed Mm -hmm. to just read it and picture it in your mind. I mean, I don't know. Does it defang the character? Does it really end up implicitly changing the way that she's reacting? Because the hazing doesn't seem quite as severe in the film as a result. But the book, 
honestly became a little bit torture porny in a couple of different places where you're just like mentally these kids have no system of support Mm -hmm. to help get them through these tests and that is not strength and my concern was that people would read this book and say oh true strength is being able to overcome the fact that someone you know got stabbed in the eye and then just go back to fighting and running around playing capture the flag the next day One general thing I'm grateful for in the film adaptation is that in two separate incidents in the book, when Triss is in danger from Peter, there is a sexual connotation to Mm -hmm. that fear. Like he he grabs at her body. At one point, they steal her clothes so that she's vulnerable and naked. They take that out of the film. Yeah. Uh, or there's a, there's a brief suggestion, but it's not anywhere near as sort of viscerally reactive as in the book. But I do think the mistake they make with Peter is less the defanging of him and more... So at the end of the story, Peter, we find out, yeah. has not been serumized, uh, ostensibly because he'll, he's happy with killing people for whatevs. So he doesn't end up serumized, and he is guarding the pit when Triss and her father and brother and Marcus return to Dauntless to try to terminate the program. Mm-hmm. And in the book, it's explained that Peter needs an escape, like he needs to get out of Dauntless. Yeah, they would kill him if they found out that he had betrayed them. But in the film, there's absolutely no reason given for why he's suddenly like with them at the end of the movie. Yeah. Like, I guess it's implicit, but it it's really implicit. Like, he doesn't seem to be in fear for his life. He's not in fear of his life from Dauntless. He's in fear of his life from Triss. Yeah, he should be afraid of her. And instead, he's like, hey, can I help on this train with you? (laughs) And then, like, again, watching it with with my brother, he was like, wait, why is that kid with them again? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. In the book, it's clear. Are you sure that your brother and Brian aren't the same person? Because Brian (laughs) literally was like, wait, why is he coming along? (laughs) And I tried to rationalize it and then realized I couldn't. (laughs) Because in the book, you've got this great scene of, like, Triss navigating the tension of having both Marcus and Peter, like these two threatening, violent, scary people who they now have to like manage as they're escaping. And in the film, it's like, oh, also these guys are here. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. So I think that's the bigger problem with Peter's character is that he just seems to... He's just there. He's just there. And he seems to bumble about. And like, it's maybe not a great use of Miles Teller, who is capable of a lot of intensity. I didn't feel like they got to his intensity. Devin was like, well, just send that guy to go play drums. <laughs> like, right? it's true. He's better playing drums. We're talking about Whiplash in case people Oh, yeah, sorry. Know. He's yeah. the main guy from Whiplash. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of odd casting in this film that doesn't quite make sense to me like i don't know why will and al were cast with what appears to be the exact same person because it makes them very visually difficult to differentiate especially once they're all in their dauntless clothes yeah because everybody just kind of looks like they're wearing black pajamas and then when you've got guys who are the exact same height exact same (laughs) body build same hair color you know, Brian was like, who's who? And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, Al's meant to be this big, hulking, yeah. kind of mopey guy. Who smells like lemongrass. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. The way that Al also has his very, very brief arc in this movie did not mm-hmm. work for me at all. No, and I don't I don't think that I love it in the book, but at least it makes some sense. And I also, uh, one of the things that struck me about Al, the reason I bring up the lemongrass is because for all her faults, Roth is 
a fairly skilled craftsperson when it comes mm-hmm. to prose. Like I don't, I don't believe the world she has built exactly, and I have a lot of problems with the political structure of it. But she does really good things with senses. Yeah, she articulates the smell of all of these places really effectively. And one of the reasons why that scene where she is attacked has more power when Tristan's attacked has more power in the book is because she realizes that Al is one of the people trying to kill her because she smells him she smells that lemongrass Mm -hmm. smell that she knows from him from being his roommate because she's been blindfolded at that point so that's her only identifier Whereas in the film, you have this like face reveal. And the only reason you know it's Al is because she goes, oh, Al. Because otherwise, yeah, he's indistinguishable from the other guy. Oh, generic attacker. (laughs) And it doesn't have any power in the film as a result. So that was one of those moments where I was like, go team books. Yes. (laughs) And then I would counter by saying, go team film with the casting of the women. Yes, I don't disagree. Kate Winslet is great. Kate Winslet is great because I definitely felt that Janine in the book is one note. Mm -hmm. Here I will challenge the way that Roth writes to say she has some body shaming issues that she needs to effing own up to because Mm -hmm. the way that Janine is described in the book. She had a roll of pudge around her middle. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's tantamount to saying Smart fat people are the dangerous ones now. And that's the only person who gets described in that fashion, in that level of grotesque disdain, not disdain. Well, it's the disdain that Triss has for her in that moment. Like, it's like this moment of, like, smugness. Triss knows that she, Mm -hmm. Triss isn't beautiful. Like, we're told over and over again that she doesn't have a pretty face. Yeah, because, of course, we've got the the beautiful transition to model actress. But anyway, sorry. (laughs) And four is, even four in the book is like, you're not pretty, but you're all these other great things. But... You've got when... a scar across your face and you're missing half an hour. Oh, wait. Sorry. <laughs> Wrong book. Wrong book. But she's strong and she's fit and she's taut, right? Like we're told over and over and over again in the book. Like, she's got muscle definition She's now. got all the, like her body is sculpted and taut. And then mm-hmm. the disdain with which she describes Janine's yeah. one roll of pudge is like, it's so, it's so gross. The weird implication being that if you get smart, you get lazy, you get yeah. lax, you let your body go. And that that is worth disdain. Like, there is almost as much disdain in those few sentences for her body and her having, quote, let herself go, unquote, as there is for the part where she's murdering people. Mm -hmm. Roth seems to treat those as, like, pretty equal sins. Yeah, that on the level with murder. (laughs) (laughs) The inherent ableism of the text as a whole, like, the places where a disabled body would be welcome are places like erudite, right? Mm -hmm. And yet that is the worst thing that you can be. And so there's just this constant, like the way injury and harm and pain are dealt with as like profound individual failings in the book, which uh, there's been quite a lot of controversy about Roth's second series, Carve the Mark, where a character with chronic illness, her experience of pain is what gives her her powers. And a lot of people in the literary community, as it intersects with the disabled community, have been like, this is a problem. This is not okay. And um, Roth has defended herself in various ways about this. But knowing that controversy and knowing that, that way of dealing with pain and illness in Carve the Mark, it really changed the way I read the scenes of injury in Divergent. Yeah. It's hard Not to for the better. once you yeah. once you know it. Through the looking glass. Yeah. 
But yes, Kate Winslet is oh, lovely yeah. in the role. She is lovely. <laughs> she has the best clothes of anyone in the movie. Yeah, that to me was where that costuming really came into play because mm-hmm. of the tailoring and the cut of her suits. Mm-hmm. It was very distinct from a lot of the other characters that helped to distinguish, you know, this is a woman with power. Mm-hmm. And it almost felt like it was a direct F you to the book because yeah. Kate Winslet is stunningly gorgeous. I didn't always love the wig, but it I was seems... going to say, I actually love the hair. I Did thought you? it was okay. just, I thought it was perfectly Janine. Yeah, it is good for the character. Part of what didn't work for me is that it kind of just kept getting in her face. Yeah, that's <laughs> it true. bothered me a little bit. <laughs> but the You're look, not so the intellectual that you can use it. a bobby pin. <laughs> She's so busy, she don't got time for bobby <laughs> pins. <laughs> The other person I really liked, I would have liked more of Zoe Kravitz, but I think part of that is because I've seen her in other projects since this, mm. and mm. she's gone on to become quite a great actress. Mm-hmm. Great. She doesn't often get used to her full capacity. Same with Maggie Q. So, of course, any person of color is shockingly not being well used in this film. Mm. Well, and Zoe Kravitz is, so she plays Christina, and Christina's character is a lot more complex in the book as well. So, like, there's this capture the flag game mm, yes. where in the book Tris solves the problem but isn't fast enough to actually like get the flag and no she is fast enough Christina says oh, you've already got yeah. this because you impressed four by finding the base why can't you just let me have this win yes you're right which you're is so right. interesting and sorry to cut you off that was very rude <laughs> no but you're right you're absolutely right and it's important because it's like this moment of am I really abnegation and not dauntless for Tris but it's also it allows Christina to have some complexity when that same scene is recounted in the film first of all they change it from paintballs to like these like nerve dart Mm -hmm. stupid things anyway whatever did not care for that it was like hey we've got this opportunity to have them cause more pain to each other can we just slot this in yeah but that whole complexity of christina's character and the desire to win and the the jealousy of triss's success like that's completely gone from Mm -hmm. the film and so christina as a result is much more flat which is a shame because zoe kravitz is an excellent actor and i think she could have done with a meatier version of christina yeah but again that would have meant there was another woman doing something interesting in the story yeah the female relationships in the book aren't great in that sense but at least they have some depth and there's something interesting to consider within them Mm -hmm. whereas Mm -hmm. in the film i mean really in the film it's our common adaptation problem right everything has kind of been smoothed out and the interesting challenging bits have been gotten rid of so that we can streamline and make sure that we've got enough time to set up our big action movie finale and for some reason, and I'm, I mean, I'm assuming the reason is patriarchy, but for some reason, <laughs> in all of these movies, the thing that we decide needs to be smoothed out is that we can't have more than one woman doing a thing at any given point in time. No, but we sure as hell have a lot of time for a romance. We have a lot of time for a romance. We have a lot of time for like interchangeable dudes who it's impossible to keep straight which one is supposed to be which, but having more than one active female in an action movie is just like a a bridge too far. So speaking of action females, uh, how did you feel about Ashley Judd? Oh, I wanted uh, more of her. (laughs) So much more. (laughs) There's a lot more mom in the book and the mom scenes are some of my favorite. When she comes to visit her at Dauntless, that's one of my favorite scenes. I was really mad that they cut that scene. Apparently there is a deleted scene on the DVD that doesn't have that scene, but it has the aftermath where she's leaving and saying, enjoy a slice of chocolate cake on me. Oh, cool. To which I'm like, 
I mean, I guess if you're not going to bother including the scene at all, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to include that extra bit. No, but that would be weird. There is something that I think is vital that's lost by not including the visitation day scene. Well, plus, like, we know way before Tris does that her mom was Dauntless, right? Like, we, we yeah. figure that out way before Tris does in the book, and it's helpful for understanding. The thing I think the film does well is the introduction of the mom character back into the final scene makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. In the book, it's like... She's drowning. She's drowning. Her mom saves her. And you're like, where did you come from? How did you, what is happening? How did you know she was in a tank? You're never going to explain any of this to me. Okay. So that part I thought was better. But I just think in general, the mom had a lot to offer in the book that we don't see happening in the film. And I know that she has to die before the dad because that's the narrative arc of the story. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like they use the dad more in the film than the book. And they use the mom less. And I don't know, I'm going to blame patriarchy again, but it's a disappointment. It was very odd to me, and maybe this is just showing my age or the fact that I grew up within a certain time frame, but to me, you don't cast Ashley Judd yeah. for a role of this size. Don't waste any Judd, but don't waste Ashley Judd. <laughs> I mean, I have a fondness for her. She brings a lot of warmth and humanity mm -hmm. to this role, even in... I really like that opening scene where she's cutting Tress's hair mm -hmm. and she has that sly kind of wink when she shows her the mirror so that she can take a look at herself and we can get the first of many, many mirror motifs yeah, going so on. Yeah. But yeah, I just think Ashley Judd brings so much to this role and to do so little with her then, it's like, why not hire someone else? someone less famous so that it's not quite so distracting because every time she showed up it's like Ashley John <laughs> missed you girl where you been yeah. <laughs> you have so much to offer us mm -hmm. and you don't get used to yeah. no right. no yeah so I don't know the action is fine it's I feel fine. like the end goes on for too long I was frustrated with Triss that she makes a big deal about stopping things because every moment she hesitates, an abnegation dies yeah. and a Dauntless becomes a murderer. And then, yeah. you know, she's just hanging out after she <laughs> nails Kate Winslet with the knife. She's just kind of like, hmm, should we do pad thai for dinner? Or should we, you know, maybe get like a burger instead? Like Triss, do something. You're on the clock. <laughs> So I had some issues. I mean, I'm the pacing editing guy. So I was just like, all right, let's move it along a little bit here. We're at two hours and 30 minutes. It was two and a half hours long? It was, yeah. It's, I think, uh, 140 minutes. Oh, wow. Huh. So maybe you liked it better than you thought because you didn't seem to notice. Uh, that's because we were making fun of it. And it makes the movie go faster. Fair enough. Yeah. I needed more people with me when I watched City of Bones. Probably wouldn't have hurt. There's no. a drinking game to be had in some of these films. That's true. Yeah. Um, anything else? Just bingo when you're ready. All right. Let's do some Bingo! Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so I already said pervy teacher. Yes, you did. Pervy teacher is very important to me. Four is a pervy teacher, especially in the film. Yeah. Also dead parents, obviously. It takes mm -hmm. them longer to die than in some of the other stories, but yes. there are dead parents. It's weird that we actually get to see the parents before they I die. Know. I'm so We get to confused. see them die. It's <laughs> new. And then uh, child soldiers, yes, obviously. Poor old Dauntless. Your favorite. My favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's going to cut that and it's going to end up like on my Rate My Prop page. <laughs> Or printed on your on your tombstone at the end. Loved child soldiers. <laughs> or hated. Yeah, that was basically what I had. 
it's probably a bit of a reach to say that Triss is a bit of a manic pixie dream girl, but mm. she has a lot of those kind of twee, I'm special, like, I hate the term snowflake, but she is kind of the special one. I don't know. Mm. Maybe we need to swap out one of the squares and say, you know, a chosen one status. But Yeah, because there's definitely a lot of that. She alone can fight the vampires. <laughs> I'm almost surprised there weren't vampires. <laughs> I think there might be in the third one. <laughs> Christ. I, I repressed so many. And by the way, I meant to say earlier, the reason that you probably confuse three books with four because they made the third book into two movies. They were going to, but then the third movie lost so much money that they <laughs> never ended up making it. And then they threatened to turn it into a TV show. And then they had to cancel that because <laughs> Shailene Woodley, it. God bless her oh, heart, yeah. was like, I am not coming back to do a TV show to yeah. wrap this crap up. She's also like, she's getting too old. Like they all, especially when you cast such an old four and then you wait like, five years to make the three movies that are supposed to happen like one two three because mm -hmm. like if i remember rightly book two like opens when they're on the train oh yeah it's immediately it it's afterwards. a breath later yeah. i think they go and hide in candor or maybe it's yeah no amity don't they hide in amity? yeah yeah sorry the head on the farm because yeah. that's when we meet four's mom right oh anyway maybe mm -hmm. one day i'm no. interested to know Here's another social media question. So in addition to letting me know whether you ever made your own clothes on your sewing machine, <laughs> ladies. No, I want to know if you ever watched a movie when I'm going to go home and whip that up on my sewing machine. Okay. Joe. So, so in addition to that very specific social media question, <laughs> I would like to know if listeners would like to hear us do subsequent entries in any of these series. Please God, please God, no. If they have an accompanying text. Because part of this is I, I do think it would be interesting to chart how successive adaptations either rise to the occasion or if they just fall further into the trap. Because I've seen some of these second films and read some of these second books and a lot of them actually get way, way worse. When you're voting on this, remember that I'm a human being with feelings? <laughs> How much do you want Brenna to have to suffer? And will it make her a better Dauntless member if she has to read the other books and watch the other movies? My fear landscape is just Joe saying, I think we should do book two of City of Bones. <laughs> you don't have to worry. There's, there's no adaptation. We would just be watching the TV show, and I don't think they follow it that closely. <laughs> yes. All right. Where are we going next, Joe? Are we doing more, more, more post-apocalyptic wastelands or what? What's uh, happening? I'm not going to tell you until you tell me how people can get a hold <gasps> of you on social media. <laughs> I'm just really good at the beats of this show. All right. Gotcha. So as we've already said, hashtag HKHSPod on the Twitters. If you mm -hmm. want to talk about the show, you can find me directly at Brenna C. Gray. Yes. That's great with an A. And Joe, where can they find you? You can find me at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B. And if you've got something longer to say, of course, you can always send us an email at hkhspod at gmail.com. We've asked before, but I'll ask again. If you've got Divergent fanfic, I want to read it. So send that to the email inbox. Oh, yeah. No, Gosh, totally. I should make sure that I'm checking that inbox to make sure that we're not sleeping on any good fanfiction. <laughs> Seriously. Okay, so now I can tell you where we're going next. Thank you. So in time for its Netflix season two debut, we are going into some horror territory, Brenna. And we're going to be talking about 
Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So we're going to read the first volume of the graphic novel called The Crucible. And then we're going to watch, well, I've asked you to watch a couple of episodes. I've watched the entire first season. And just to help you out, because I know that you're a bit of a scaredy cat. We are going to have our first ever special guest. So we're going to have a third person to help us make heads and tails of this. It's probably a good idea. And I will say, I am a scaredy cat. I don't like horror as a concept or genre, but I am a pretty hardcore fan of the Archie universe. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this one has some good atmosphere. I would actually argue that it's not scary. If you can handle stuff like Buffy and Charmed, then you're going to be good to go. I've never watched either, but... Okay, we have some talking to do off air, Brenna. I know, can you believe we've been friends this long and I've never admitted to you that I've never watched a Buffy? Shocking realization and I will not have it. (laughs) Now I'm going to put Buffy on here because we've got comics that we could do. We've got, (laughs) oh, it's so much. Okay. Pray for me, listeners. Yes. All right. Well, that's a topic for another day. So So until then, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye.